an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We have tonight the fourth in this series on the personalism of Blessed John Henry Newman. And um, tonight's uh, paper is entitled Newman's Personalist Account of How We Reason. So there's an account of a certain way of reasoning, very important to Newman, and which is very expressive of us as persons. Now in the course of these lectures, we've gotten acquainted with different facets of Newman's personalism. In the first lecture, we examined the singular concreteness of Newman's thought and why he is particularly attuned to the personal as a result of this concreteness. In the second lecture, we considered the infinite abyss of existence that he finds in each person and why each of us is thereby revealed as person. In the third, we went in an entirely different direction by examining Newman's thought on personal influence we found something eminently personalist in his account of how religious truth is transmitted by personal influence. So very different aspects of Newman's personalism have come to light. Now, you may want to keep track of these different aspects of his personalism and express each one with precision and, and one good way of doing this is to consider the opposite of each. So let me go through the three lectures again, uh, looking for the opposite of uh, Newman's personalism. In the first lecture, we saw that Newman's concreteness of thought stands in opposition, among other things, to thinking about persons in terms of stereotypes. By using a stereotype, we pick out one abstract aspect of someone and take it as representing the main reality of that person, that blocks the view of the entire concrete reality of him or her, thus obscuring the other as person. You see, and uh, in the second lecture, we saw how uh, Newman affirms this infinite abyss of existence in each person, and we saw that he's thereby negating the position that each person is just one of innumerably many. Each is just a kind of speck in the cosmos. But rather, Newman is saying that each of us exists as if the only person. And in our third lecture, we found him saying that truth is not, here's the negative, not transmitted mainly by committees and organizations, but by personal influence. He brings out another opposite that defines personal influence when he says, truth is not transmitted mainly by abstract arguments, but by personal influence. And as we saw, he brings out yet another opposite when he says, truth is not transmitted by books, but by personal influence. So we see the, you might say, the exact edge of his thought on personal influence by understanding the different opposites of personal influence. So 
if I want to introduce tonight some new facets of, pers of Newman's personalism uh, and new aspects that have to do with how we reason, I think I can do no better than beginning with the relevant opposites. So one opposite of personal acting is being passive. You see, to the extent that I just passively endure what befalls me, I'm not really alive as a person. When, for example, I am led in my mind by association from one thought to another, I'm passive and hardly in the experience as person. If you've read John Paul II's writings uh, on, on the human person, you know how he distinguishes between that which a man does, acting through himself, and that which happens in a man, or happens to a man, and that he passively endures. So we're about to see that for Newman, there's a passive way of reasoning that contrasts with a more spontaneous and creative way of reasoning, and that the latter is eminently personal. And here's another opposite that we'll need tonight. Whenever we act exactly like everyone else acts, our acting can become anonymous and cease to be distinctly personal. When, for example, an official acts correctly, for example, issues a passport in accord with the um, legal regulation, he does what anybody else occupying the same office could do. What he does can be done as well by any equally conscientious official. But if he acts not in accordance with the demands of his office, but acts in his own name and on his own initiative, then the anonymity of his acting gives way to a distinctly personal acting. And we will see that the kind of reasoning that Newman calls personal is personal by forming a contrast not only with the passive, but also with the anonymous. So some aspects of his personalism that we haven't yet um, encountered at all will emerge in tonight's lecture. Now, the primary source for Newman's personalist thought on how we reason is his work, The Grammar of Ascent, from 1870. It's also Newman's most philosophical work, uh, and a very seminal, original work it is. Now, I'll also make reference tonight to an important Anglican work of Newman's, his Oxford University sermons, which contain a kind of early draft of the grammar of ascent. Now, to um, introduce you to the grammar of ascent, let me show you the motto that Newman chose for the work. Um, it's a perfectly chosen motto and catches the spirit of the work as well as any motto could. It's from St. Ambrose, who wrote, non in dialectica complaco et deo salvum facere populum suum. God has not wanted to save his people 
by means of formal logic. Now, Newman argues that there's another kind of reasoning, different from formal logic, and that this one does play a large role in our salvation. Newman calls it informal reasoning or informal inference. And he calls the power in man that carries out this informal inference by the name of the illative sense. That's a technical term in Newman from the Latin illatio, which means reasoning. So the illative sense is that in us which does the informal uh, reasoning. And as we'll see, Newman understands the illative sense in an eminently personalist way. That's really the main point of tonight's lecture, to show that. Now, before getting started with uh, Newman on reasoning and inference, we need to know that Newman is above all interested in the kind of reasoning that we use in concrete matters of fact, especially matters of historical fact. And the reason for this focus of Newman's interest is clear. He is interested in the reasoning that leads us to accept the claims of Christianity. And Christianity is a religion that makes definite historical claims. Whoever inquires into the truth of Christianity has to reason about matters of historical fact. So Newman had an apologetical or a pastoral reason for his special concern with how it is that we think through matters of historical fact. Now, um, we're mainly after the so-called informal inference, but for the sake of a very revealing contrast, I'll start with something on formal inference, according to Newman. Now, we've all encountered formal inference when we studied mathematics, the steps by which you prove a theorem in geometry are based on formal inference. You remember the old theorem about how, given any square, you derive a new square exactly double in area of the first square? Well, it turns out that it's the diagonal of the first square, which is the basis of a new square exactly double the area of the first. Well, you can advance rigorously and relentlessly to that conclusion uh, in, in elementary geometry. And, of course, in algebra, too, this formal reasoning is at work. It's also at work in the famous syllogism of Aristotle. If you've taken the elementary course in logic, you know about Aristotle's syllogism and the formal reasoning that um, is analyzed there. There is, in all formal inference, a wonderful precision and exactness there's also uh, a very great certainty. Uh, so strong uh, is the certainty of formal inference that it really excludes all disagreement and debate. So no reasonable person could think that you produce a new square with double the area of a given square from any other length than the diagonal of the given square. People, of course, make mistakes in their formal reasoning, but the mistakes are such that once pointed out, no one can persist in making them. Now, Newman calls particular attention to the fact that 
formal inference appeals solely to the intellect, not at all to the will and the heart. It is only by sharpness of intellect, not goodness of will and heart, that you reason well, say, in geometry. And only by weakness of intellect, not weakness of will and heart, that you go astray in such subject matters. It does not matter what condition your heart is in, your intellect is always able to follow and test a formal argument. Now, let's consider some examples of formal inference as it's ex exercised in matters of historical fact, because this, as I say, is the focus of Newman's interest. David Hume famously attempts to discredit all alleged miracles by means of a simple formal inference. He says that whenever a person alleges a miracle, it is always more likely that that person is deceived or is lying than that the miracle has really occurred. Because, Hume says, it is a very common occurrence for people to be deceived or to tell lies about miracles, whereas the real occurrence of miracles is, by definition, very rare. With this single stroke of formal inference, Hume claims to prove that no alleged miracle is worthy of our belief, that we are almost certain to be wrong if we acknowledge it as a real miracle. But it's not only uh, skeptics like Hume who employ formal inference in matters of fact. Christian apologists uh, commonly use formal inference in their apologetic work. So for instance, you've all heard the argument that Christ, who claimed to be the Son of God, must have really been the Son of God, for there are only three possibilities, and two of them can be eliminated. In claiming divinity, he must have been insane, or have been a liar, or have really been the Son of God. But everything we know about him tells us that he was not insane, and that he was unconditionally committed to the truth, and thus the opposite of a liar. And there remains only the third possibility, namely, that he must have really been the divine person that he said he was. Now, Newman took a dim view of formal inference in matters of historical fact, and he even took a dim view of formal inference as used in Christian apologetics. His own apologetics is cut from a completely different cloth, as you'll see. And his reason for this suspicion was, was the following. Formal inference picks out only one aspect of reality and shows what follows logically from this one aspect. But concrete reality has innumerable aspects. And if in our reasoning we don't take account of many of these aspects, we're liable to come to a wrong conclusion. Or at least to, excuse me, sorry, I thought I had shut it off, like I tell my students.
to do. Uh, and now it is. Sorry. Um, so concrete reality has innumerable aspects, and if we don't take account of them, we're liable to come to a wrong conclusion. Or if we come to a right conclusion, we're liable to grossly oversimplify uh, the reasoning that we really do carry out. So <coughs> let's look at Newman's response to Hume and see how he refutes Hume by thinking more concretely than Hume ever did about the alleged Christian miracles. And more concretely than Hume ever could using only formal inference. So here is Newman uh, in response to Hume. Doubtless, it is in the abstract more likely that men should lie than that the order of nature should be infringed. Note that Newman here grants the main premise of, Newman's, of, of Hume's formal inference. So he refutes Hume not by contradicting his premise, but by showing how deficient Hume's argument is in terms of concreteness. Newman continues, doubtless it is abstract, that in the abstract more likely that men should lie than that the order of nature should be infringed. But what is abstract reasoning to a question of concrete fact? To arrive at the fact of any matter, we must eschew generalities and take things as they stand with all their circumstances. A priori, of course, the acts of men are not so trustworthy as the order of nature. And the pretense of miracles is, in fact, more common than the occurrence. But the question is not about miracles in general or men in general, but definitely whether these particular miracles ascribed to the particular Peter, James, and John are more likely to have been or not. And then Newman, proceeding, um, enters into some of the concrete aspects of these miracles. Uh, and in this way overcomes the skepticism of Hume. He, he asks of the miracles, now I continue quoting, whether they are unlikely, supposing that there is a power external to the world, who can bring them about? Supposing that they are the only means by which he can reveal himself to those who need a revelation. Supposing he is likely to reveal himself, that he has a great end in doing so, that the professed miracles in question are like his natural works and such as he is likely to work in the event that he wrought miracles, that great effects, otherwise unaccountable, in the event followed upon the act, said to be miraculous, that they were from the first accepted as true by large numbers of men against their natural interests, that the reception of them as true has left its mark upon the world as no other event ever did, that viewed in their effects, they have served to raise human nature to a high moral standard otherwise unattainable. These and the like considerations are parts of a great complex argument which, so far, can be put into propositions, but which, even between 
and around and behind these propositions still is implicit and secret and cannot, by any ingenuity, be imprisoned in a formula and packed into a nutshell. End of that quote. So you see how Newman tries to overthrow Hume's conclusion by thinking more concretely about the alleged Christian miracles than Hume did. Now, Newman thinks that this abstractness of Hume's argument can't be helped as long as it is a formal argument. In other words, the mischief lies in the very nature of formal inference. Newman is always contrasting the luxuriant abundance of concrete reality with the relative poverty and barrenness of those concepts that are needed for formal inference. In one place, Newman describes vividly uh, and with a touch of his irony how logicians flee from the concrete to the abstract so as to make our language suitable for formal inference. And he says, the concrete matter of propositions is a constant source of trouble to syllogistic reasoning as marring the simplicity and perfection of its process. Words which denote things have innumerable implications. But in inferential exercises, that is, in crafting a formal argument, it is the very triumph of that clearness and hardness of head, which is the characteristic talent for the art, to have stripped them, that is, words, of all these connatural senses, to have drained them of that depth and breadth of associations which constitute their poetry their rhetoric, and their historical life, and to have starved each term down till it has become the ghost of itself and everywhere one and the same ghost, so that it may stand for just one unreal aspect of the concrete thing to which it properly belongs, for a relation, a generalization, or other abstraction, for a notion turned neatly out of the laboratory of the mind and sufficiently tame and subdued because existing only in a definition. And then Newman, ending the passage, um, uh, uses a striking analogy. Thus it is that the logician, for his own purposes, and most usefully as far as those purposes are concerned, turns rivers, winding full and beautiful, into navigable canals. Navigable canals, of course, are always built as much as possible on geometric principles. So <clears throat> Newman is saying that the marvelous exactness and certainty of formal logic makes it ill-suited for concrete historical subject matters. You're liable to miss the mark with a formal inference, just as Hume did. You may reach a conclusion that indeed follows with logical rigor from one unreal aspect of the concrete thing, only to have it canceled out by other aspects of the same concrete thing. Newman is in effect saying, if I could return to the very first lecture, that 
this formal inference works with notional apprehension. Whereas concrete reality is adequately grasped only by real apprehension. So Newman is led to ask how it is that we reason fruitfully and successfully in historical subject matters. If not by formal inference, then how? And so now we come to the main focus of this presentation. Now, as I said at the beginning, Newman speaks of informal inference as exercised by the illative sense of faculty of the mind. This is the alternative uh, that Newman seeks for matters of concrete fact. And in, in fact, he gave us a good specimen of informal inference in his way of reasoning about the Christian miracles. The passage against Hume is vintage informal inference in the sense of Newman. Let's go back to that passage just for a moment. Newman says that he is able, in ex expressing his conviction on miracles, to give no more than some specimens of the concrete considerations that accumulate in the mind of the believer in the Christian miracles. And that he's not able to give anything like an exhaustive account of all the reasons that move a believer to accept the miracles. R remember how Newman, in the passage quoted, said that these considerations that move the mind are implicit and secret and cannot by any ingenuity be imprisoned in a formula. He means that the reasons that move us to acknowledge miracles are reasons too numerous to be formulated exhaustively, all of them, in propositions. Hence he says that many of these reasons that support the Christian miracles are as he put it, between and around and behind the propositions that he formulates. You see, this is in sharp contrast to formal inference, where all that enters into our reasoning is formulated in definite propositions. Perhaps we could explain this contrast um, between formal and informal by um, referring to Computers. This is an explanatory strategy that uh, Newman did not yet have available to him. But a formal inference can be entered into a computer in such a way that the computer can unfailingly determine whether the ins inference is valid or not. It could, in fact, test the inference more reliably than any human mind can. But an informal inference is altogether beyond the reach of the most powerful commuter, computer for the simple reason that it can't be completely entered into the computer. For as Newman says, there are always more considerations accumulating in the mind of the reasoning person than can be formulated in propositions. This is fundamental to Newman's thought. There is always more in our experience of concrete reality than can be captured in our propositions. 
and even if we're ever so articulate and elaborate in formulating those propositions. You see, informal inference works with this more. That is, it works not only with experience as formulated in propositions, but also with that excess of experience that cannot be fully formulated in propositions. But <clears throat> let's put on the table another example of informal inference. So far we just have the, the one example of Newman's way of encountering Hume. Now, in the grammar of ascent, Newman considers the circumstantial evidence that in the absence of witnesses of a crime may suffice in court for the conviction of the accused. Circumstantial evidence commonly involves many different strands of thought that are woven together and made to accumulate and to reinforce each other in such a way as to be strong enough for convicting the accused. Thus, one may argue that by assuming the guilt of the accused, one can explain more facts of the case than by assuming his innocence. Or one may argue that certain inconsistencies in the testimony of the accused point to his guilt. One may then put these inconsistencies together with the greater explanatory power of assuming his guilt. One may factor in what's known about the past life of the accused, what's known about the character of the other suspects in the case. One may even factor in the impression that the accused made during the deposition. One will certainly rely on one's sense of what is believable and what is not believable in the testimony of the various suspects. Newman thinks by weaving together all such considerations, that, that, that the weaving together of such considerations cannot be carried out by formal inference. These considerations, just as in the case of miracles, are, Newman says, too subtle and circuitous to be convertible into syllogisms, too numerous and various for such conversion. End of that quote. When a jury arrives at a judgment beyond any reasonable doubt, it has arrived at it by way of informal inference. The jurors have exercised their illative sense about the concrete circumstances of the crime. So you get the idea of a kind of reasoning um, that uh, is especially at issue in matters of concrete fact and which uh, has this informal character and stands in a clear contrast with so-called formal inference. And now we come to the point that especially interests us uh, in this lecture. Uh, the bearing of all of this on Newman's personalism. The exercise of informal inference, Newman says, is an eminently personal act. And it is personal in a way in which formal inference is not. We just had a glimpse of this personal character of uh, the illative sense when we saw that informal inference cannot be replaced by a computer, but can only be carried out by a living human mind. 
insofar as formal inference is replaceable by a computer, it is that much weaker as personal act. Now here's another way of seeing the personal character of informal inference. The mind has to estimate the force of the evidence with which it works. It has no rules to apply to it. How strong is the circumstantial evidence that is presented in court? Is it enough to make us certain beyond a reasonable doubt? We have no clear criteria to apply to the evidence, criteria that would let us read off the conclusion that follows from the evidence. You see, with formal inference, you have such criteria. For instance, if you studied the syllogism, you remember the rule that um, a syllogism with two negative premises gives no conclusion. Or in the second figure of the syllogism, you need both one affirmative and one negative premise to have uh, the possibility of drawing a conclusion. Now, armed with enough of these rules, you can quickly tell whether a syllogistic argument is valid or not. But with informal inference, you and I have no such criteria to apply. We have nothing but our personal judgment as to what the evidence proves. As Newman puts it, we feel the upshot of the evidence more than see what it implies. And in thus feeling the evidence, we're forced to think, to think in a very personal way. You see, in the case of formal inference, we can mindlessly apply our rules and criteria in determining what follows from our premises and what does not. Our mental activity can remain mechanical, and we need not really think about the argument. But within formal inference, we take responsibility for our conclusion. We can't hide behind rules and criteria. In one place, Newman uh, says that we arrive at the conclusions of formal inference, now I quote, not ex opere operato. You maybe recognize the Latin term taken from sacramental theology. Baptism works ex opere operato. doesn't require any particular subjective disposition in the infant baptized. So Newman's picking up that idea of something that works, as it were, by itself, apart from how it is subjectively received. And so he says, uh, we arrive at the conclusions of informal inference, not ex opere operato, by a scientific necessity independent of ourselves, but by the action of our own minds, by our own individual perception of the truth in question, under a sense of duty to those conclusions, and with an intellectual conscientiousness. End of that quote. There one sees very clearly the strong personalist character of um, informal inferences. Now, this quote um, just read brings up uh, an important personalist aspect of informal inference, namely a certain involvement of our moral nature. He spoke, after all, in that quote about under a sense of duty, with intellectual conscientiousness. So we pointed out above that formal inference 
makes demands only on our intellectual abilities. Informal inference, especially in religious questions, makes demands on the whole man, on his heart and will no less than on his intellect. Thus, for example, the person inquiring into the Christian miracles needs to approach the question with a reverential awe of God, with an eagerness to see whether God has acted miraculously in the way Christians claim, with a longing to encounter God in the world, with a strong sense of one's need of encountering God, with a fear of missing some revelation he may give of himself. If the inquirer approaches Christianity only with academic curiosity, he will not be capable of fruitful informal inference. Thus Newman says in one of his Anglican sermons, for is not this the error, the common and fatal error of the world to think itself a judge of religious truth without preparation of heart? And then he quotes, I am the good shepherd and my sheep and know my sheep and am known of mine and he goeth before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice and the pure in heart shall see God. And then Newman resumes, gross eyes see not, heavy ears hear not. But in the schools of the world, the ways toward truth are considered high roads open to all men at all times. Truth is to be approached without homage. Everyone is considered on a level with his neighbor, or rather, the powers of the intellect, acuteness, sagacity, subtlety, and depth are thought to be the sufficient guides into truth. There is, Newman concludes, no room for choice. There is no merit, no praise or blame in believing or disbelieving, no test of character in the one or the other. End of the quote. So, these powers of mind may suffice for a formal inference, but they do not suffice for an informal inference, especially on religious questions. For here, there really is, Newman wants to say, a test of character. A well-prepared heart enables us to discern strands of evidence that are lost on a merely curious inquirer and to be more resourceful than he is in weaving the strands together and making them reinforce each other. And in addition, a person with a well-prepared heart is willing to venture to believe while having less than perfect evidence. Newman contrasts such an informal reasoner with, quote, that cold, skeptical, critical tone of mind which has no inward sense of an overruling, ever-present providence, no desire to approach its God, but sits at home waiting for the fearful clearness of his visible coming, whom it might seek and find in due measure amid the twilight of the present world." End of the quote. So informal inference has a personalist character that formal inference lacks because it engages the whole man, including the heart. 
while formal inference engages only the intellect. Now, it's not, not difficult to see in Newman's teaching on the illative sense, as we've laid it out, those two aspects of personalism that I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture. We said first that a person doesn't show himself as person by passively undergoing what befalls him, but by acting through himself. Well, there is a certain passivity in following a formal inference. And Newman expresses this passivity when he says in one place that we are indolently carried on into the conclusion by a formal inference. And I myself tried to express this passivity in speaking of the mechanical character of our thinking when we test a formal uh, inference for its validity. In one place, Newman expresses the active element of the illative sense by speaking of, quote, a living spontaneous energy within us, an expression he would never apply to the understanding of a formal inference. And we said, secondly, back at the beginning of the lecture, that there is a dimension of the personal that stands in contrast with the anonymous. Well, there is something anonymous about following a formal inference. Every right-thinking person who turns his attention to it traces out exactly the same line of reasoning. I am present in my formal reasoning just as another rational being, but I'm present in my informal reasoning as this individual person. For I carry out my informal inference in my own way, even when people concur in the conclusion of their informal reasoning, they typically reach the conclusion each in his or her own way. My living spontaneous energy of thought leads me along a different path than yours leads you. And so uh, there is uh, this, uh, this antithesis to the anonymous is somehow thinking in one's own name, as it were, in the informal inference. Well, um, since uh, Newman's theory of informal inference has these two aspects of the personal, it's not surprising that Newman often uses the word personal in uh, discussing informal inference. So he says, but what logic cannot do, my own living personal reason does for me. And in another place, Newman says, such a living instrument, as the illative sense is, is a personal gift, not a mere method or calculus. And in another place, Newman says, thus, a proof, except in abstract demonstration, always has in it more or less an element of the personal. And particularly striking is this from Newman, the personality, so to speak, of the party's reasoning is an important element in proving propositions in concrete matter, that is, in exercising the illative sense. 
So this talk of the personal character of this informal reasoning seems to be especially natural in light of the role of, as we saw, the heart uh, for the individual unrepeatable person is particularly expressed, not just in reasoning according to some universal paradigm, but in reasoning in a way that engages the whole person and most of all the heart. All right, well, we um, just have to consider one objection, and we are at the end of this presentation. It is, however, a fairly serious objection to Newman. Um, and it goes like this. Truth is objective. It's not mine or yours. It rests in itself. And what I find in my search for truth, you too should find in your search for truth. The search for truth, this objection says, is not the place for personal originality, but for submission to the one truth. Formal inference seems to be based on the universal validity of truth and to lead to it and to unite us with others in it. But Newman's personalist account of how we reason seems to be dangerously subjective and to lead each person in a different direction. Now in one passage, Newman admits that informal inference can lead people to opposite conclusions. He says, from the sight of the same sky, one may augur fine weather, another bad. From the signs of the times, one the coming in of good, another of evil. From the same actions of individuals, one infers moral greatness, another depravity or perversity. One infers simplicity, another craftiness. The miracles of Christianity were in early time imputed by some to magic, others they converted. The union of the early Christians was ascribed to seditious and traitorous aims by some, while others it moved to say, see how these Christians love one another. The downfall of the Roman Empire was to pagans a refutation to Christians and evidence of Christianity. End of that quote. So you may say, how can informal inference really be an instrument of gaining truth if it does no better than this in uniting different people in the one truth that is valid for all? Does Newman's personalism, which seems so winning as we present it, turn out to be a kind of subjectivism. Now, this objection perhaps should be presented not so much as an objection that one makes from the outside against Newman, but rather as a point of tension within Newman's thought. For there is a side of Newman's mind that affirms objective truth in the strongest terms. I refer to what he called the dogmatical principle in religion. When he was made a cardinal by Pope Leo in 1879, Newman said in a famous address in Rome, and I rejoice to say to one great mischief, I have from the first opposed myself 
for 30, 40, 50 years, I have resisted to the best of my powers the spirit of liberalism in religion. Liberalism in religion is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another, and this is the teaching which is gaining force daily. It is inconsistent, Newman continues, with any recognition of any religion as true. It teaches that all are to be tolerated, for all are matters of opinion. Revealed religion is not a truth, but a sentiment and a taste, not an objective fact, not miraculous, and it is the right of each individual to make it say just what strikes his fancy." End of that quote. So Newman there at the end of his life in Rome almost sums up his life's work uh, in terms of resisting theological liberalism and defending the dogmatical principle in religion. And so our question is, how can Newman's lifelong zeal for doctrinal truth cohere with his personalist teaching about how we reason by means of the illative sense? How can we put together the anti-subjectivism of his affirmation of religious doctrine with what seem to be subjectivist tendencies in his account of informal inference. And I will now uh, conclude uh, tonight's lecture with a rich passage from the end of the Grammar of Ascent in which Newman faces this challenge and attempts to harmonize the universal validity of all truth with the highly personal path uh, to truth that persons take when they reason informally. And so Newman says in a really a classic paragraph, I begin with expressing a sentiment which is habitually in my thoughts whenever they are turned to the subject of mental or moral science, and which I am willing to apply here to the evidences of religion. That is, that in these provinces of inquiry, Egotism is true modesty. In religious inquiry, each of us can speak for himself, and for himself he has a right to speak. His own experiences are enough for himself, but he cannot speak for others. He cannot lay down the law. Now, I just interrupt the longer passage to say that Newman is clearly um, speaking here of the illative sense and of informal inference. If you offer some formal deductive proof uh, to your uh, the partner in discussion, you do in a way lay down the law, telling him what any right-minded uh, person must think. It's with respect to informal inference that we can't, as Newman says, speak for others and can't lay down the law. Now Newman proceeds here to acknowledge the universality of truth, saying, he knows, uh, the person inquiring into religion, he knows what has satisfied and satisfies himself. If it satisfies him, it is likely to satisfy others. If, as he believes and is sure it is true, it will approve itself to others also, for there is but one truth. And doubtless, he does find, in fact, that allowing for the difference of minds and modes of speech, 
What convinces him does convince others also. There will be very many exceptions, but these will admit of explanation. Great numbers of men refuse to inquire at all. They put the subject of religion aside altogether. Others are not serious enough to care about questions of truth and duty. Now I might just interject here that this mention of being serious should remind us of what Newman said above about the preparation of heart needed by the illative sense when it works on religious questions. No one should be surprised at a disagreement between a person who approaches the religious question with due seriousness and a person who approaches it as a mere matter of curiosity. They disagree, but not because truth is subjective, but because one of them is personally unprepared for receiving the truth. Now, as Newman proceeds in this paragraph, watch how he is drawn now to the personal, now to the universal aspect of truth. It causes no uneasiness to anyone who honestly attempts to set down his own view of the evidences of religion, that at first sight he seems to be but one among many who are all in opposition to each other. But however that may be, he brings together his reasons and relies on them because they are his own. And this is his primary evidence. And he has a second ground of evidence in the testimony of those who agree with him. But his best evidence is the former which is derived from his own thoughts. And therefore, his true sobriety and modesty consist not in claiming for his conclusions an acceptance or a scientific approval which is not to be found anywhere, but in stating what are personally his own grounds for belief. So there's the affirmation of the personal. But then he goes on to say grounds which he holds to be so sufficient that he think that others do hold them implicitly or in substance, or would hold them if they inquired fairly, or will hold them if they listen to him, or do not hold from impediments, invincible or not, as it may be. And of that quote. Um, but we're not quite at the end of this paragraph, uh, because though he has just acknowledged that there's truth in what he says. It certainly will resonate with others. He then concludes um, the, uh, reaffirming his so-called egotism, which is really his personalism under a certain aspect, saying, however, his own business is to speak for himself. In this remarkable paragraph, Newman seems to me to make room both for the personal and the universal aspect of truth, even as he gives a certain priority to the personal. And um, I would just say in conclusion that this unity of the personal and the universal is exemplified in Newman's own writing. That is, he always writes according to the principle Egotism is true modesty. That is, he always speaks in the personal manner appropriate to the illative sense. The extraordinary fascination that Newman has for his readers comes in part from the fact 
that this personal manner is very strongly developed in him. And yet, and yet, all who have experienced Newman deeply and felt the power of his wisdom are indebted to him for all the truth he has shared with them. They find not just idiosyncratic views that are Newman's alone, but they find in Newman a universal truth that resonates in themselves. They feel that Newman has led them more deeply into the world of Christian truth, and that they stand together with Newman in this truth. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.